Good morning, Ned. Ciao, Davide. Where are you? I'm in Alpe di Mera, where the dew-speckled meadows run down to the river valley, where partial road closures are already in place. The Giro d'Italia comes to the mountains again today, bringing with it its familiar cortege of middle-aged men in puffer jackets, shouting at local residents. Congestion is expected all day at the one pizzeria trying to keep up with the demands of 10,000 drunk tifosi. Summer has arrived in the Alps. Top temperatures are 25 degrees today in bright blue skies. You're listening to The Morning Butterfly with me, Ned Bolting, and David Miller. His Radiohead, and no surprises. Neverstray's Farfalle Giro d'Italia morning show special podcast is brought to you by Chapter 3 and The Roadbook. That's a really catchy name, isn't it? The Neverstray's Farfalle Giro d'Italia morning show special podcast. Anyway, Chapter 3 was created by you, David Miller, in 2015 with the vision of creating cycling clothing that you would wear as a retired racer. Now for 2021, Chapter 3 have made cycling kit to meet you wherever your ride takes you. They're calling it Most Days. It launches in only a couple of weeks' time. So make sure you sign up via the link in the show notes to get access before anyone else does. In 2018, Ned and a team of dedicated enthusiasts delivered the inaugural edition of the Roadbook Cycling Almanac, an annual publication supplying day, essays and anecdotes from the racing calendar. The Roadbook 2020 and past editions have become the definitive companion of any fan of the sport. To be the first to hear about limited pre-order runs for future products and exclusive promotions, sign up by the link in the show notes. Well, his team set him up. Bernal now sweeps past his teammates. Oh. Will it be third or second? Bernal is dropped. Bernal is dropped. And the Yates is it. dropped by Yates. Yates goes now. There's the communication. He's just encouraging him. Dig in. Big acceleration now. But looking at this 300 metres to go, this is going to be a win for Dan Martin. What a ride against the odds, Ned. Special, special day. Probably the best man, the best day of this man's career. What a career he's had as well. A career that has delivered monuments in Lombardia and Liège, Bastogne-Liège. It has delivered victories at the Tour de France, the race that in many ways he has always focused on. Last year, he went to the Vuelta as well, and he rode to victory there. But this is the crowning achievement in Dan Martin's career, bar none, when he gets to the line. When he gets to the line, the Irishman will have made history. The nephew of the great Stephen Roach and the Giro d'Italia, Dan Martin, completes the set. A brilliant victory from the Irishman. What drama. Hello, Ned. Uh, Morning, David. We've got a... We've got a bit of bike racing to talk about and catch up on. But in the meantime, have you noticed what T-shirt I'm wearing? I did notice that immediately. Euskal area, the Basque country T-shirt from that little shop in, uh, what was the name of the village? Aha, I know. Espelette. Spot on. You got it. Espelette. That was the best one because it was the final time trial in when G1, wasn't it? When G won the tour, yes, uh, t- yeah, 2018, yep, 2018. Because I, I went out with to kind of just sometimes get some time, especially at time trials, and I was like walking around the village and thought, you know what, I'm going to buy Ned and I Yushigal 
area t-shirts basically with the basque sign what do they call that sign actually it's got a name hasn't it it's got I've no idea. Of, it looks like yeah it looks like a kind of um ventilator fan doesn't it it does look a lot like that um and i went into this little it's beautiful village it's very basque in the sense it's it's got all the basque houses which are all the kind of red and green beamed and big farmhouses lovely sort of pedestrian center and and they have espalette um chi- kind of chilies hanging anywhere don't they yeah, the kind of peppers hanging everywhere throughout the place, or off the walls of the buildings, and yeah, great big beautiful. bunches of them all tied together. Yeah, yeah, and I found a little shop that was selling these t-shirts, and I went in there, and I was in there looking around, and I, as I was buying, the guy said, "Hey, is it David Miller?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah." Uh, oh, what? I said, "Ah, il y a quinze ans, je crois. Je vous ai vu uh-huh. dans un café uh, uh, Saint Palais." And I was like, hang on a second, what? <laughs> and because I used to live there, I lived in Biritz, which was 15 kilometers from that, from that village where we were in. I used to train through there all the time. But it turns out this guy who owned that shop, he'd been in a cafe, I think it was 15 years before, when I'd been one of, been one, on one of my big pre-Tour de France training rides. And I just, I was so exhausted that year. At that point, I just overtrained myself. And I was about 40, 50 Ks away from Biritz. And I just couldn't do it anymore. So I just pulled into this, um, little village and pulled up my mobile phone and called a taxi and just sat on a park bench and waited to get picked <laughs> up. But while I was sitting on this park bench, all fully kitted up in coffees, there was obviously some gentlemen in a cafe across the road looking at me. And one of those gentlemen happened to be this guy who owned that shop 15 years later. And he was no said, said I, yeah. And he's like, I remember watching you sitting there and we were wondering, and uh, it turns out that they saw me climb into a taxi to get driven back home in my final big pre Tour de France ride that year. Yeah. That is nuts. Isn't That's it a great nuts? story. But I what I love about that me. is, it, what I love about that is I'm only hearing it for the first time three years later. <laughs> yeah, I didn't tell you anyone never, that story. You never told me that story. That's yeah. I do remember because I was sitting down, it was time, as you say, it was time trial day. You and I had, it was light, there was a light rain, wasn't there? And we'd been staying on the outskirts yeah. of Beeritz in that big hotel. Yeah, that weird big we, hotel. Weird, weird big hotel and we set off um and it was would have been a, a really lovely ride but i but it's quite tough i remember anyway oh, and then yeah. we got there a little bit late i think as we often did and i was sitting there trying because it's time trial day which involves quite a lot of prep in commentary doesn't it because mm. you've got to get ready you've got to get ready for live maths yeah and you've got to do most of it because it's, it's weirdly just, yeah the color doesn't it's, come in much thank god it's quite a good day for me Yes, but yeah. semi day off. But I do remember how um, how my spirits lifted when you came into the commentary booth. You know, half an hour before we were on air, with a t shirt for me. Really <laughs> nice of you. And I still, yeah, I still, I don't know. Is it okay to wear t shirts that you're given three years later? Yeah, that's okay, isn't it? Yeah. It's a good thing. That's a, it's a really good, thing. good thing. Yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. Buy buy less, buy better. And every every time I put this particular t shirt on, I remember the time and the place. That's pretty mm. cool. That is pretty Espelette. cool. Espelette. There you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's happy memories, Ned. Can you remember yeah. as well, we'll get on to the Giro d'Italia soon, but can you remember that on that day, it was the final episode of a uh, a triptych or a trilogy of uh, interventions by the gendarmerie in that race? And it was the final episode in a series of three misadventures by the French gendarmerie in 2018. 
Can you remember <sighs> what happened that day and what the other two were? Uh, well, was that the one with the, the year with the pepper spray? That The pepper spray? That okay. was the first. That was the one where uh, in, in an attempt to prevent demonstrators on the foothills of the Pyrenees from stopping the Tour de France, the gendarmerie pepper sprayed the demonstrators so ineffectually that the wind blew back and they actually just pepper sprayed themselves. And then subsequently, the entire peloton of the Tour de France, therefore, thereby bringing to halt to a halt the, the peloton of the Tour de France and achieve, achieving the goal of the, the demonstrators perfectly. Brilliant. That was that was incident number one. I thought that was great. And then a couple I, of days later... I got a total blank on the other two. T- a couple of days later, that epic day where both of us rode all the way up um, the Col de Porte, Mm. That that massive climb in the Pyrenees after oh, yeah. the stage, uh, that was the day that if effectively Chris Froome abandoned any hope of winning the Tour de France because he lost a lot of time that day. And on his way back down, Team Sky uh, had given him a, yeah. a grey cagoule to, to, you know, jacket to ride down in so he wasn't readily identifiable. And on the way down, on closed roads, which the public weren't supposed to be riding on or driving on, uh, a gendarme hauled him, manhandled him off his bike, thinking he was just the schmoo. That's right. <laughs> just thinking God. he was a member of the public. And, just uh, when you thought and your day couldn't get worse. So good. And Chris Froome so swore at him, which was the best thing ever. And Chris Froome swearing is just a beautiful thing. It is a funny thing. Yeah. And then and then on the Espelette time trial day, do you remember we when we were commentating, Chris Froome was in the hot seat and Dumoulin was out on the course. And when Dumoulin came to the line, it was like a split second between oh, Dumoulin and Froome. That's right. I forgot about that. And the time, we didn't know what, we didn't know whether he'd beaten Froome's time or not because the, <laughs> yeah, the timing machine had a total meltdown. It kind of went green, red, red, green, green, red, red, green, don't know, like that. And the reason it had a meltdown was because at the precise moment that Dumoulin crossed the line, the Bobby, the gendarme who was posted on the finishing line, decided to put his boot across the timing, uh, sort of, you know, the timing laser, laser thing. thing. Kind of <sighs> disrupting the entire system and causing a total meltdown. So it's it's it, still arguable, John- isn't it? And it's still arguable whether Chris Froome did win that time trial or not. It was that close. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Huh. It was given to Dumoulin in the end, wasn't it? But, yeah. Um, yeah. There you go. There you go. There it you might go. have been Chris Froome's final victory stage win at the Tour de France. You but see, we'll never know because a, a French policeman put his boot all over it. You see what a t-shirt can do? There you go. Look at that. That's we're eight minutes into the pod from that t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> no, that implies, no, you shouldn't have said that really. Cause that implies that every morning we, we just desperately clock watching to see if we can get to half an hour of content. No, it's not at all but true. There's no. some truth in it. A little bit. From time no. to time, there is a little bit of truth in that. But well, we've got two days of racing to catch up on today. <clears throat> we have. And I um, say, I don't, I'm, Mm. I'm curious because I was, I was actually looking forward to hearing all about the big mountain stage that Crosswind's done one yesterday. Crosswind's so done. now I've got to Crosswind's hear two done. stages in one, which is going to well, be I quite can, complicated. Maybe I'll sum me. up. Maybe I'll sum up yesterday. Sum up yesterday, yeah. Um, 231 kilometers and Alberto Betiol won. Okay, very good. Um, uh, it was a bit, no, it was a bit, it was a bit better than that. Third, the last 30k, big breakaway group that had gone. Uh, had a big, big, big old scrap in these series of four little hills. Um, Cavagna attacked a long, long way out, as everybody knew he would. 
Uh, there are a few sprinty types in there. One by one, poof, 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 they all kind of got dropped. Big counterattack from Betty Olin Roach, who actually used to be teammates at BMC, which is quite interesting. Oh, that's a nice little fact. Yeah. Betty Ol, um on the final climb, catches Cavania, drops Cavania, goes over the top with 5k to go, never seen again. Uh, and a, a brilliant win, actually. And only his third ever victory. You know what, that's what I was looking up as well, and I was so surprised to see that he's only won three races. And his first yeah. ever professional win was the Tour of Flanders. Yeah. Just a, yeah, it's amazing. But it's quite that's good amazing. to see Nico Roach do so well. He finished... He finished second, actually, on the stage and looked really pleased to finish second and was delighted for his old teammate, Betiol, which is pretty cool. cool. But it's as as good a ride as I've seen from Roach in a long time as well. And I wonder whether he'd been partially inspired. Has Roach ever won a stage in a Grand Tour? I don't think he has, has he? Yeah, Vuelta. Vuelta, that's it. Yeah, that one stage, wasn't it? Or twice. I think he's won a couple. And he's worn the jersey at the Vuelta, hasn't he? You're right. Two two Vuelta stage wins. Yeah, and the jersey there. But but you're right. You're right. Nico Roach is, is it, it, kind of like in that category of riders. Fourth. He's in that category of riders where you think, he's, surely he's won a stage of the Tour de France. And mm. a bit like Daryl Impey, do you remember a couple of years ago? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Your friend. How's he doing, by the way? I don't know. I need to check anything. It's operated on a Wednesday, but I haven't heard anything since. So I think he's just in the down low, recouping. Poor bugger. Fair dues. Yeah. Um, and that was yesterday. <clears throat> yes, yeah. that was yesterday. What was the uh, little controversy that happened with uh, Peter Sagan yesterday? Don't know. So I just read something about he's been fined for. Um, uh, she's quite for intimidation. Peter Sagan fined for intimidation. Whoa. Yeah. Well, in, you need to bring me up to speed on that. <clears throat> when t- tell me about that? Uh, just just have a quick look at it. It is unknown what incident led to the penalty. <clears throat> So nobody really knows. But Sagan's teammate Oss kept a commanding presence at the head of the peloton. And, oh, right. So it might have been. So if Peter, you, you've said you've noticed before that Peter Sagan's playing a bit of a boss at the front of the peloton, trying massively, to decide. Massively. Massively. Really kind of obviously, in a way that I've never seen him race before, actually. It's quite well, interesting. It could be, although they haven't listed what it was, it must have been some, the intimidation must have been trying to shut the race down at the front of the peloton. So he's, he's over-patroned yep. it. Yeah. Which you, you never see that. I've never seen somebody get fined for that. So really it must interesting. have been, must have been actually bullying said. a bit. I don't know, it's yeah, just scaring was, riders. Very visible at the front. And it's actually um, slightly disappointing to see what we were really looking forward to, this battle for the Amalia Ciclomino. Was a week ago, we thought well, we're going to have a tremendous scrap because there's three mm. riders, Chim- Davide Chimolai, Gaviria and Sagan, really quite close. Um, but but I, I actually need to go back and look when when it was that actually any of them scored any points whatsoever. Because Sagan, rather than winning the jersey as he used to do on the Tour de France by attacking, he's actually found himself in the jersey and then just been content to, to defend. Um, so he's just intimidating everybody out of it. So, so he's, just, he's just shouting at everyone, telling them not to do things. Um, and he's quite an intimidating kid. I would oh, imagine yeah. being... I, I mean, he's, put, he's wanna... properly kind of barging and, t- you know, and like constant yeah, yak, yak, yak. physical. So yeah. that's interesting. Right. Yeah, that's really unusual. Yeah. Saving, his, um, uh, saving himself the tour by winning this jersey without actually having to win it. Just bullying that, everyone out of competition. That's quite an interesting point, actually, you make there, because it only just occurred to me a day or so ago that this is the first time ever that Peter Sagan will be going to the tour having raced the Jira. Yeah. 
So that's an unknown ground for him. I mean, he's, the, the advantage he has is he's always, he's often, actually almost always done the tour and then the Volta. And because he always uses the Volta for the worlds, et cetera. Yeah. But he tends to find himself flying at the Volta by the end of it. So he knows how to do it. So it's quite interesting, actually, considering, and if you take it into account that normally he comes to the Volta after a Tour de France where he's literally been turning himself inside out for three weeks, it seems mm. that he's actually going to get through the Giro a lot come out of it a lot better than he is would normally come out of the Tour de France. So yeah, I think he, he probably knows what he's doing. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Peter Sagan uh, at his best at the Tour de France, to be honest. Yeah, it's a good point. He's mm. he's looked really good at the Giro and maybe that does explain why he's been a bit conservative over the last, I mean, it's hard enough, isn't it? He's got, mm. he'll have his mountain legs <laughs> yeah. but, uh, for sure, because the next two days are summit finishes. Mm. It's crazy Giro so, style. But yeah. So let's go back to uh, the day of Dan. Day of Dan. Have um, you been, have you messaged him? I've messaged him, but he, I think he's great. ticks me. He probably got Is quite a lot to be fair. Actually, I'm oh, te- no, 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 no. Check, 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 check. I uh, want you to yeah, check. Great ticks me. Yep. Yeah, great ticks. Okay. That's interesting. I, all I said was fuck. So it wasn't really much to, to reply to. No. So that's, um, you could have done a bit. Yeah. But just so you know, blue tick, Plus a reply. Oh, what? Seriously? Yep. What did you yep, say? Yep. I said, um, I said a slightly more evolved version of what you said. Oh, I did a little, I, I added an emoji, which helps, <clears> I think, in the, in the 21st century. Personalize it. Yeah. Personalize it. I put a hat, you know, the top hat emoji. Oh, like, oh, like a chapeau. Like a chapeau thing. Yeah. Did <clears> something <throat> like that. But, but yeah, yeah. Blue tick oh, plus okay. reply. No. Mm. Um, it's actually quite okay. funny. He said, what did he reply? Here it is. Um, Cheers, Ned. Wanted to make it exciting for everybody, so I let them get close. So it was. I've had read reports and stuff a little bit, but <clears throat> it sounds like he was on a mission from the beginning of the day. It was. So this is important to note, I think, because, um, you know, the headline of his race is obviously the way he climbed the final climb, which was a Brilliant climb, by the way. Absolutely amazing. Um, and, and previously, as you noted in the, the pod we did a couple of days ago, never been used at the Giro before, just at the Tour of the Alps, uh, when Nibali won in 2013. But if you just, if you just, uh, remember what he did on the climb, which was truly exceptional, then you're not doing his ride justice because clearly they, Israel, you know, and Dan had, had, um, identified that stage as being all in. Mm. Um, they knew there'd be a real, real fight to get in the break because it was almost a, almost a guaranteed breakaway day. It's not quite how it turned out, obviously, but almost a guaranteed breakaway day. So there was a prolonged, another 60 kilometer battle to get in the, the break of the day and team, teaming up with Matthias Brendler, his teammate. And this has been a real feature of the Giro, actually. We've seen a lot of two up attacks to try and place right. We've seen a lot of fixers, you know trying to take riders across to plant them in the break. And Brendler was Dan Martin's fixer hmm. a couple of days ago. And it didn't work the first time. It didn't work the second time. I think it worked the third time. And um, so he'd expended, uh, in the most economical way he possibly could, he'd already kind of gone pretty deep to even get in the breakaway of the day. And not just, you know, had he gone deep, he'd been really smart because for the first 10, 15 minutes after the flag dropped, we didn't see him at all because he just knew 
that none of those moves were going to go. So as people tired and it all got a bit more ragged, it was only then that we started to see him and Brendle. And then, and then he just picked, he seemed to pick the right move and he did eventually. And if you consider other riders who would have identified that stage in just the same way as, as Dan Martin did, um, the likes of George Bennett, for example, they, well, they didn't make it, you know. So there was a degree of strength and there was a degree of uh, real racecraft in getting, in getting in the breakaway. It's one of the things actually <clears throat> with Dan Martin, the few people well, I don't think they would know or perhaps appreciate is that he is, when he's on, he reads a race like nobody's business. I mean, he's just so, he's such a cool customer, but it's also, it, he's got this really explosive ability and he's in the peloton when, when we used to, obviously we were teammates for, for many years. And actually I was the one that convinced him to come onto our team back in 2008 and he was the best climber to look after because you didn't have to worry about him because he'd just always be there when you needed him. And I could just drift around at the front. And he was very good at sitting at the front of the peloton as well. And there was never any stress. He'd just be floating around, just cruising, surfing. And then also with the moves, he could read the race so well, he'd know which moves to go for. And it's the reason that he is such a, a prolific winner for the type of rider he is, because he is prolific when you look back over his career and the consistency of winning big races. It's not just strength, it's this tactical ability he has to not only win the finales, but also get in those moves at the beginning of the day, then read the break through the day. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very impressive ability he has in that respect. So that was, that was actually, can I just ask you, because I don't know the answer to this, I've, or I've forgotten, where did, where was he in, before he came to Garmin, for, before uh, you asked him to... Uh, La Pomme Marseille's. Oh so, yes, of course he was. Yeah, yeah. So that's the big French amateur team that's that served for many years as the sort of the the feeding ground, if you like, so, so for pro teams to to find the the best French young talent and international talent as well, because they go to France, they go to VC La Pomme. Because uh, at, at the time as well, not to forget with Dan Martin, although he was part of that generation, uh, the Cav generation, etc. Um, probably just a little bit younger was he no he's about the same age as, as old same age, yeah. yeah but he wasn't a track rider <clears throat> he was a, he's a as we know he's a little climber sprinter and so that meant he wasn't nurtured through the gb system so he didn't have the, the same advantage as g as ian stanard as pete kenya because mark cavendish and the list goes on so he had to go and make his own way and he made his own way by leaving going more the more old-fashioned route of finding a, a team on the continent. And, uh, and that's what we did went across there, won a lot of races. And so, but I, that was when we were starting slipstream. So it had been in August, 2007, when I called, called him basically out of the blue, when I was recruiting all these riders to come on board slipstream. And, uh, and he was just this young kid in, in South of France. And, and already you could tell he was pretty smart, but he had a lot of, yeah, I think he had two or three world tour teams that wanted to sign him. And slipstream was just this little motley crew at that point. Of, and we were a pro continental team, and yeah, he saw the he saw the potential, and he came on board with us. And yeah, he's had, he's had a great career since. Um, so what I described was kind of step one of his race, as far as I see it. Uh, step two was being in the break. Um, and there was there was a, 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 a quite a small climb, a cat three or cat four, quite early on in this in the in the um, race. Then a long valley road, then a really big fourteen kilometer cat one climb and then a descent and then the final climb right on all those climbs he worked on the he set the pace i mean mm. not just the pace he set a he set a a, 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 a kind of like a, 
a remarkable pace. He did all the pace setting because this was not a day where the peloton just went, I'll let him have 14 minutes. Um, Ineos uh, initially kind of took it up and allowed the gap to grow to five minutes quite early on. But straight away, bike exchange, uh, Yates' team, Yates, Simon Yates, uh, got on the front and um, brought it back on the approach to the um, the Cat 1 climb, the penultimate climb, they brought it right back to three minutes. And that was with, you know, that was with two Category 1 climbs remaining that the breakaway had three minutes. And I think a lot of, I think it was 19 riders in the initial break. And um, a, a lot of them just kind of went, well, hey, pff, wrong day, this ain't going to work. And their heads fell off slightly, yeah. you know, because that's not a break that's going to be allowed to go. Self-evidently, that cannot go to the line, not with all this climbing, not with the nature of the final climb mm. as well. But Dan Martin kept chipping away. And I'm thinking, this is kind of like, full of panache, but totally pointless. You know, he mm. was doing big turns on the front. He was riding hard. He was animating it wordlessly. It's not like he was kind of yeah. Peter Saganning it and patroning it and trying to betty all it and kind of get everyone going. He just did it by, he just did it by um, example, really. He got mm. on the front, kept the belief going, set this furious pace on the, on the climbs, got over the top and took one minute and 30 seconds onto the final climb, which was over 11 kilometers the first nine of which were, I mean, the st some of the steepest climbing I've ever seen over a prolonged stretch in any Grand Tour. Wow. Well, the first nine kilometres were a sustained double-digit climb. Probably, what? Probably 11, 12% on average. It was a ferocious climb. And Dan Martin hits, hits the foot of that with one minute and 30 seconds in hand. No, I didn't realise that. One, I, it might have been even slightly less than that. Oh, that's insane. There's just one other thing to note, but I don't know if you just, if, if you're aware of this, because I read this in the reports, that he'd started with a full aero bike and changed to a climbing bike before the, that penultimate call. Didn't know is, that. Didn't see that. Yeah, so he was, in, he was full aero for the first 100Ks of the bike, uh, that race, and then switched to his climbing bike. So it, there's, there's a lot of strategy that's gone into that. I mean, it sounds pretty obvious, but it takes a lot of kind of confidence and commitment to do that. So yeah, sorry, carry on. No, really good detail. Actually, I think we've seen one or two riders do that at the Giro. So I wonder if that's a thing that we're going to see more and more, more and more often, actually. Anyway, the GC race behind, which we need to talk about as well, is, is just brewing up, isn't it? It's just about to explode on the lower slopes of this um, amazing climb, by the way. And one of the things that I love about the climb, um, what was it called? Uh, Sega di Ala, that's, that's the name of the climb in the Dolomites, in the, in the Adige River Valley, just up in the hills, are sort of like climbing out of the valley. One of the things I love about it is the way it looks, because it looks different. It goes through, instead of a conifer forest, it goes through this, um, ancient beech forest. And at this time of year, the beech trees, tall beech trees, um, the leaves have just come out. They're only a few weeks old and they are, you know, that kind of acid lime, lime green it's you know later on in summer they go quite dark green but at this time of year they are neon lime green and on a sunny day it just it looked spectacular and um so it cuts its way through this it cuts its way through this beach forest it's a really unusual feel to it but so so steep martin beds in and you're looking at the time gap but the cameras most for no, for most of the time now the cameras quite rightly i suppose are focused on the gc race behind where you've got this sense of, okay, bike exchange are no longer on the front. Ineos have a little bit 
thin on resources now because they've popped off one or two riders and Castrovejo starts to Castrovejo set the pace. But you're thinking something's going to happen there. Something's going to happen. So Castrovejo does a, does another, does another great ride, but all the while kilometers are ticking by kilometers are ticking by and Dan Martin's lost. Okay. T- one minute 20 now, one minute 10 down to about 57 seconds. And then it kind of, he stops losing time. And for the middle part of that climb, that time gap is pretty constant. And so Martin is clearly climbing at the same pace as Jonathan Castrovejo, huh. um, who is starting to shred the, who's shredding the group, you know, one by one, they're all, they're all dropping off as you'd expect. Um, with about 4k to go or something like that, then the big move comes. And uh, that's the moment that Simon Yates, uh, Simon Yates. lights it up. He lights that's it that's up. That's a long he, way out as goes, well. Yeah, he went He went pretty early. I might have got that wrong, but if, I don't think I have. Around about 4K, possibly even 4.5K, off he goes. Mm. Instantly, Egan Bernal reacts. I mean, instantly, just like he did on the Zonkaland stage, straight onto his wheel. Now, Yates was four and a half minutes down, four minutes 20 down on GC. Arguably, did Egan Bernal need to go straight onto Simon Yates' wheel? Possibly. You're shaking your head. I think, no, he didn't, did he? But I guess it's just instinctive at that point in the race. And especially, I suppose, if you're with what we know now and what unfolded, perhaps he was a bit nervous and there was yeah. a bit of a psychological move just yeah. to kind of n- neutralise it as quickly as possible. Yeah. I think with the benefit, and it's massively hindsight, isn't it? Probably that was a tactical mistake because he, I think Bernal put himself, I mean, this these slopes were savage, really savage. And Bernal just put himself too far into the red. And a few hundred meters later, he cracked very quickly. Um, and it, I think so, so fast and so surprisingly, I think it caught Danny Martinez out and it took a while for Martinez to kind of drop back to him. And actually, you know, that iconic picture that's done the rounds now, I'm sure yeah. you've seen of, of Martinez, to. you know, berating yeah. him in, in Spanish. Yeah. Um, come on, Egan, because you just got that sense just flickering there. The Giro is right on the line uh, right now. <clears throat> and actually, I wonder, brilliant though it was, Martinez kind of like, you know, really animated, but I wonder whether it was the right messaging in a way. Like, here's a guy who's head's come off and you're just, yeah, I know. And you're just shouting a, at him. You know? it's, it's not much he can do. It's not as if he can try harder. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's ride it's your always, bike faster. Come on, try harder. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No. Be better at cycling. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wonder uh, whether the message the message should have been maybe you've got this, you've got yeah, four, yeah. four so minutes. Relax, we've got time. We've got time. No, it's you lose a, lose a couple of minutes, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all good. It's all good. We got this. We got this. But actually, that's. But anyway, so all that's going on. Meanwhile, Yates, boom, he's gone. He's dropped. He's dropped the Maliarosa, and he's flying. And Almeida is looking great as well. And those two, you're thinking, ooh, okay, here's where Martin loses the stage. Mm. Except he doesn't because with. Two and a half kilometers to go. This freakishly steep climb kind of tops out, and the final couple of kilometers, albeit into a slight headwind, they're only about they're only about four five percent, maybe maybe five six at, at best. But it's no longer the kind of ramps, and um, but into a slight headwind, and you're thinking, ah, and Almeida's flying, and Yates is, but then Yates has kind of fully expended himself by the time he gets to that point, gets rolled by Almeida, and Almeida even in the final few hundred meters could still. Could still get to Martin, you sense, but actually no one gets to Martin and he wins wow. by what, sev- 17 seconds? Yeah, yeah. 
Now, what was so cool about the interview he gave afterwards was he said, and I, I, I think I'm almost quoting him verbatim, he said, on that final climb, I, um, I held something back for the last 2K. What? Right. One, how? <laughs> I mean, like on those slopes, how do you hold anything back? You know, yeah. I mean, how do you have the, the physical ability to hold anything back and the lucidity mm. to hold anything back? And, and two, how brilliant was that? Because he said they would, be, they would have been thinking, um, that's where, that's where yeah, we're getting, that's where. Yeah. And, and um, the fact that he held something back and then he went on the flatter section, he said, that's where, that's where I just broke their will. That's where I won the race. That's very, so good tactically. I mean, as you said, it's one thing to be able to just have the physical prowess to do that and the stores to be able to do that after a day like that. I mean, just when I hear of those numbers now, it's just, as you said, it would be considered from the peloton behind, it would have been a given they're going to catch him. So, and they would have been exactly reliant on the fact that he's going to exponentially hemorrhage time towards the top of the climb. So if he was kind of pacing and using that tactic to his advantage and, and riding what the peloton was predicting him to do, that's so smart. And also the things with Dan Martin, you see him in most of the races that he wins uh, on climbs. He's got this nitro button that he hits with like a K two kilometers to go. And he knows how long he can hold that for. So it's almost as if he, he was still using his tactic he'd use at the front of the race. But when he was from a breakaway, which is which is pretty bonkers, because he does have this crazy anaerobic nitro ability to just go deep in the red for three or four minutes, Dan. And I guess again he was just relying on that for the final two Ks. He knew just hit that button and just go and just explode on the line. So yeah, so cool. It was the coolest thing. And all along, he said he was getting um, constant time gap info. He was getting a lot of information in his ear. Who was riding? And what the time gap was, and I have a suspicion as well, David, that he knew, he he knew what Castroviejo was doing, and that might have been the moment when he just eased off a bit and went, okay, so for the next three or four k, I ride Castroviejo's tempo, yeah, and that's mm-hmm. not his that's not his racing tempo, is it? That's him holding back. That's so to, for him to r- match Castroviejo, that was the moment. Those were the kilometers where he held something back. It's it also um, just uh, the best thing. There's a lot of um. Because I, I read in one of the reports afterwards, and Egan Bernal quoted as saying, "If I'd known the final two Ks were were like that, I'd have ridden it differently." Um, yeah. So I, I guess it go, again, it just goes to show that Dan knew a lot about that stage, and it targeted it from the aero bike at the beginning, being patient, getting the break with the teammates, knew exactly how he was going to ride it, and it's uh, and also knowing so it wasn't just the fact he was relying on that nitro button that he's got. He knew that it was going to ease off a little bit the final two Ks. So that's where he would actually, instead of just relying on that to go easier, that's where he was going to go harder. And Bernal as well, perhaps if he was freaking out that he couldn't hold Yate's wheel, he was like, if it's going to go like this to the finish line, then I'm going to have to pace this. Whereas if he'd known that it was going to ease off a little bit, he could have gone deeper in the red and risked the explosion. So it's it's interesting. It's quite surprising. And actually, it's very surprising. That's very unlike any Grenadiers not to know that. So actually, Dan and Israel Startup had done a little bit more research on that stage than even Ineos Grenadiers had, which is, which is again, quite interesting. I don't know how they pro- – uh, I'd be surprised if Ineos Grenadiers hadn't recceed it, you know, fully. The question is, maybe not did they recce it, but it. did they – Exactly. Did they actually communicate it in sufficient mm. detail? Did the did it sink in with Egan? Did he really? I mean, obviously, he just 
wasn't really aware. So some, so maybe it wasn't the actual reconnaissance itself, but the communication of that information yeah, that was exactly. kind of lacking. But um, yeah, it was, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't, I don't apologize for focusing on, on that, that um, particular victory. We've had lots of wins from breakaways at the Giro. It's been one of the really lovely features. Mm. Um, I saw like nine riders have won their first ever Grand Tour stage here from a breakaway it's been really that's been not, really cool yeah, that's rare that's, but this yeah, cool. but this was one of the best w- wins from a break i mean it was it was right up there with you know like like those days in the, in the vuelta where um uh olivera and and on the flat you know olivera and cavagna mm. have done those wonderful kind of solo solo rides it was kind of one of them in a way it was yeah. against the odds it was um, it was Taco Vanderhorn actually. His victory way back was was fantastic um, in that regard. But this was on a mountain like that yeah. with that slender attire. I just thought it was in a class. It's of huge. Its own. I mean, to be to be honest, I've, I don't think that I can't even remember when that's happened. A rider from a breakaway with a minute going into a final climb like that and being able to hold off the kind of the, the GC battle. It's just again as a credit to Dan Martin and just the the engine that he has. And I mean, even like six weeks ago, two two months ago, when I was messaging him about something else, when when he was reading my messages and, <laughs> and blue ticking me, uh, we were chatting about this, and he was like, "Ah, oh, Dave, it's like it's so different now. If it was just the numbers are crazy, the training we have to do, the sport is just different. How how much faster and harder everything is. So the fact he's doing that, and he's do, he's at this point in his career, which it is the twilight of his career, and he's performing probably better than he's ever performed as a credit to him. Cause that's not just the, the natural innate talent he has, the amount of work he's doing and the, the, how he's had to change his training and that he's competing at this level, doing things that I think at, at any time in the sport would be impressive. Um, hats off as you, as you rightfully sent, I'm going to send a hat emoji to Dan because it's, um, it's true. What a great ride. Love bike racing me. Mm. That was some, um, yeah, that was, a really, uh, that was a really special day. Um, so you referenced it just now, uh, no, a while ago. So I've been rambling on about this bike race, haven't I, for 20 minutes. But um, you actually just dropped into conversation the fact that I'm coming to Girona. Is it worth yes. us? Should we just explain why and what that's yes, all about? Yes, I think we should, you should explain why. Well, it's kind of, it's a bit mad really, isn't it? Um, mm. You are coming over. Uh, to the Tour de... You're coming over to join the ITV team in the UK for the Tour de France. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're going to have to... When you arrive in the UK, you're going to have to self-isolate, aren't you? But before that, um, before that, we've got the Dauphiné highlights to commentate on, as we do every year. Um, and obviously, I don't think you could have been expected to come over ahead of the Dauphiné self-isolate for eight days or whatever it is and then do the Dauphiné and then wait around two weeks to join us. So that's a long, that would have been too far, too long away from home. I've been in Italy, so I'm already out of the country, so to speak. So if I went home straight from Italy, I'd have to self-isolate at home and wouldn't be able to kind of join you in commentary remotely with you and Girona and me in the studios. I'd have to do it from my bedroom, (laughs) which uh, isn't a great option. So as odd as it sounds, the kind of practical solution we came up with is that I fly from Milan, where unfortunately I missed the first stage of the Dauphiné, and I join you on Monday 
uh, in Girona, actually in person. In person. The like in the same ITV, room, in the same ITV physical space. ITV commentary team is going to be commentating from Girona. On a yeah. bike for British television on a bike race in France. That's brilliant. So that's modern world. But it's good because it's so, your first time to Girona. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a tour of Girona, the, the cycling capital of the world. You're going to lose your mind. You're going to just be, it's going to, you're going to be schlooging it everywhere. Pro cyclists just gonna, walking by at every opportunity. Going to be you're going to have to keep you on a very, very, t- <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to keep a very close eye on me, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it should be good though. Um, yeah. 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 What about uh, yeah. today's stage, Ned? It looks like it's going to be pretty hardcore. Cat it's... one, cat three, then it finishes on Alpa de Mera. That looks hard. Alpadim. Yeah, I haven't seen the climb yet. I'm gonna I'm gonna go and do a bit of reconnaissance on it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. final five k of today's climb. It's it's just under ten kilometers in total. Average nine percent. Final five k over ten percent. Yeah, that's going to be tricky. I mean, the question about the question is just hovering over the race, isn't it? Like, what is Benal actually on a descending s- spiral, mm. or is he, or is he okay? So we won't know until they hit the final five kilometers of today's stage. I don't think. And yeah, and I it. don't think because they'd have to make it hard on that first climb, which I don't mm. think um, uh, Yates and his boys can do. Uh, well, they they burn too many matches. So it is one of these ones you can you can be in the position that Yates is in on GC and, and wants a challenge, but you need the team behind you, like a really strong team to rip it to pieces beforehand before he lights it up. So in that in in that sense, Bernal is protected a little bit by the sheer strength of his team around him, who who can neutralise a lot beforehand. Yeah, because Yates' team, he's got a lot of those big Aussie track mm. kind of guys, hasn't he? Um, yeah. And he's got he's got a he's not got the climbiest team really who can really yeah sit on the front and rip it to pieces. Um, yeah. Got Nick Schultz and Mikkel Nievi, and that's about it really in terms <clears> of sort of pure climbing talent. But uh, we'll see, we'll see. Uh, it's a long way to Milan, etc. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. I want to thank I want to thank our listeners who mm. uh, before everything went wrong for us yesterday which is a long hard day but i want to thank our listeners who sent in haikus um if i trawl back through my twitter feed i will um i'll try and dig out some haikus i want to thank our listeners who've reviewed us i noticed that we have got a, a lot of fresh nice reviews on itunes which is all very helpful actually to us um and yes. i want to thank in particular uh the the people who actually just messaged me yesterday to say that they had listened to yesterday's podcast and, um, and, uh, yeah. And saying nice things about that. So it was, it was quite a tough day yesterday, but, um, we go again, so to speak, right? Show goes on. Show goes on. David Miller. Thank you for being my podcast friend today. What a weird way to c- c- sign off. I've never done that before. I kind no, of I don't know what I'm That's doing. Really. I've lost my mind. No, no, I've lost I think my you mind. Lost your, it's, it's right. You have a, you've had a tough 24 hours, 36 hours, Ned. Okay. You um, do lead podcast presenting now and you just close it off nicely as if you're kind of like just smoothly closing the program out. Go on. Well, thank you listeners for another Good. wonderful time at the Giro d'Italia. We hope you do get to watch the race like Ned Bolting does today. And we'll check in tomorrow morning. And for those of you who don't watch the race like me, we can hear from Ned.